I Do Podcast, Episode 28. Welcome to IDoPodcast.com, where fun and inspiring relationship experts, therapists, and couples share tips and advice that will help lead you to a fulfilling and happy relationship. Let their guidance illuminate your path to happiness. Are you ready to create lasting love? And now, your hosts, Chase and Sarah. Do you have a topic that you'd like to hear more about or a relationship question you'd like answered? Email us at info at idopodcast.com and we'll be sure to add it to one of our upcoming episodes. We're very excited to introduce our guest today, Sharon O'Hara. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Hi, folks. How are you today? (laughs) I'm great. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on our show. We're very excited to hear all your expertise. Sharon O'Hara is a licensed marriage and family therapist with 17 years of experience working with sex addicts, offenders, and their families, spouses, and partners. For the past 10 years, Sharon has been providing specialized treatment for sexual addiction and sexual trauma in her private practice and has written a monthly Q&A column on love and sex for the addiction newspaper, Steps for Recovery. Sharon has appeared on a number of television and radio programs discussing sexual addiction with a special emphasis on the problems of female sex addicts and codependence of sex addicts. We've given our listeners just a little overview, so take a minute, tell us about yourself and why you enjoy helping people improve their relationships. Okay. I would like to say that I have been for the last five years the clinical director for the Sexual Recovery Institute in Los Angeles. I'm afraid I haven't updated my web page. Well, we'll we'll update it on our show notes page, so we'll have that on there as well. Uh, A lot of what I do is I work with people who've gotten into trouble on the Internet. Um, So I work with sex addicts and their partners as a primary kind of thing. But underneath that are all kinds of other relationship issues. Plus, I do see some clients who who consider themselves more of what you might call a love addict, you know, that they keep getting into uh, uncomfortable relationships or relationships that aren't good for them. And uh, so, it, uh, you know, all of these things tend to overlap. And I first got into this because I was interested in people in recovery from addiction because of personal reasons, which is a reason that lots of therapists get into being therapists. Um, But then I saw that the whole sex and love thing seemed to be a major way uh, that people were relapsing from alcohol and drugs. And so I thought, aha, trying to get a handle on this seems to be key to everything else. Well, very interesting. And I'm sure there's a lot of things that these underlying layers that we'll be able to discuss with our topic today in comparing your relationship to the ones in movies and television. And certainly this is probably a newer trend. Is that something that you're finding pretty common with the people you work with? I don't know how much newer it is. I would say that, uh, you know, that was has been the purpose of soap operas of ever since there was mm-hmm. radio or television. And I'm sure it was also true even in, you know, in print materials or whatever, going back uh, in decades, I think people like to compare themselves to, uh, you know, to what they read or what they see, whether it's movies, television, or anything. It's just we have so many more ways that you can compare yourself because of all the reality television, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, I think I think the whole purpose of soap operas, for example, were to 
find a way on a daily basis you could um, get to, you know, you could look at some people whose relationships were worse than yours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. You know, there's, there's a certain feeling, well, at least mine's not that bad, right. you know, in terms of somebody who's been multiple personality three times and they've murdered somebody and they had five children from, you know, whatever it was. Crazy <laughs> plot lines. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I do think there's a, a certain kind of fantasy in all of that, that that often people find somewhat of a relief. Somewhere in here I wanted to make the point that I think there is a... When I talk to couples about uh, their relationship, I always like to reference what I, what I call the sort of premier romantic myth of our culture, mm. you know, that shows up in, uh, for example, almost all romance novels. I call, uh, sometimes I, I think about romance novels as what I call codependent pornography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because there's, there's kind of a one basic plot to romance novels, and it goes like this. You tend to have, especially I'm thinking uh, historical ones, you have some young lady, and typically she's fallen on hard times. And um, and maybe she's a nanny or she's something else or whatever. And then you have a guy, and, and he's almost always something like a count or something like that because there's always a picture of a castle in the background <laughs> on the cover <laughs> yep. of the paperback. And then, you know, he's, he's got a wicked past. That's the important thing. And then here's the plot. Uh, through the love of the good woman, he changes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. And that's a really powerful plot line that you, sh- you see showing up in a myriad of ways. Um, for example... Let's take uh, uh, the movie. There's a movie that appears on television from time to time. And I find myself stopping and staring at this movie every time it comes on. And it's, I think it's over 20 years old now. And this movie is called Pretty Woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) So Pretty Woman, if you think about it, the plot of Pretty Woman is you have this young lady. Okay, she's a prostitute, but she's played by Julia Roberts. Because we all know that prostitutes look like Julia Roberts. Right. (laughs) Right. And uh, and here she is. She's fallen on hard times, you know. And then you have this guy, the Richard Gere character, who is one of these. I guess we'd call him a one percenter these days, mm-hmm. since he breaks up companies and he, you know, manipulates the Wall Street kind of financial wheeler dealer. And then you have through the love of the good-hearted woman, he changes, right? Mm-hmm. And they rescue each other. So that's a really it's just a really powerful central myth of our culture. And I think the reason I watch that is that it just really draws me in every time. And then even more recently, you have Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, yeah. I don't know about you, but I actually never read Fifty Shades of Grey, but I have read many reviews of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and it turns out that Fifty Shades of Grey is the single most powerful sexual symbol for women ever in the history of mankind. Wow. I don't know if you know this. No. It's made more money worldwide than any other single thing that has appealed uh, to women's sexuality. Wow. I just think that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Okay, and... so, so I found myself thinking, why Fifty Shades of Grey? 
And um, there are books about sex. can't just be the kinky sex. There's been kinky sex books for a long time. Why this book? Until I read this review. And it appears that the basic plot line is you have this young lady who's in college and is innocent and has never had any experience with anything. Yeah, like that exists. <laughs> and then, well, maybe it does. Anyway, and then you have this guy, and of course he's got a wicked past, and he's this Christian Grey guy, and um, only he's a billionaire. Because, of course, it's not enough to be a millionaire these days. You have to be a billionaire. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then you have, um, here's the thing. At the end of the first book, because this book is a trilogy, and that's another reason it's made so much money, but uh, at the end of the first book, evidently she decides he's kind of a mean guy, even though she's had some interesting time with the kinky sex bit. And so she leaves him, is my understanding. And then in book two and three, he you know, winter back, and they get married and have babies. Hmm. So it's that central myth again of through the love of the good woman, he changes. That's why I think this whole, these books were so successful, is it plays into that central myth of our culture. Absolutely. And bringing that back to a relationship is, is how do you see these, this theme affecting uh, relationships today? I think it's central to a lot of them, because I think you have a lot of people, well, they say, this is, this is again, a simplification, but there's always some element of truth to these things. They say <laughs> that when a man, a, a woman marries a man, within thinking, he'll be great as soon as I clean up a few things, and a, and a man marries a woman, uh, hoping she'll never change. She'll never gain weight. She'll always be adoring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Both are disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, man marries a woman hoping she'll never change. Woman marries a man uh, trying to change him. And I think, you know, so when you come down to it, how it affects us has to do with our conditioning. Yeah. And I like to talk about this central myth because I think it's so central to our conditioning. And, and and sort of trying to recover from our societal conditioning, I think, is really a big part of growing up and trying to have a successful relationship because everything in our culture, you know, promotes treating one another like objects, for example. I mean, first there's treating women like sex objects and just rating them based on the size of body parts. But also our culture, you know, encourages women to treat men as financial objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, conditioning to treat one another as objects, and I think to me that's what recovery from sex addiction is all about. It's all about trying to learn how to treat one another as people. Yeah, and maybe do you think that is sex addiction on the rise? Or I know it's only recently being diagnosed, but certainly, do you think that this objectification and and our culture is contributing to? Uh, to an increase in it? Well, I think so because of the rise of the Internet. Hmm. Because the Internet has made it possible, to, first of all, there's just so many more images and, uh, you know, ways that uh, you can be stimulated, you know. And so I think the rise of the Internet has really uh, turned a lot of people into sex addicts who maybe wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, 
you know, uh, and it's just pretty easy to get into a lot of objectification and be in just fantasy land and lose the ability. They say a lot of people who are masturbating to porn, especially men, over time find that they are losing the ability to be with live human beings. Yeah, like desensitize. Yes. And often their sexual equipment doesn't even work that well over time. So I've seen that's been written about extensively and uh, researched. But um, so, you know, if you are interested in having a relationship with a real life person in the future, uh, you know, you may be in a minority. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I think the future of sex is going to be all virtual. You know, Woody Allen was right with that sort of orgasmatron thing he had. <laughs> um, well, I've seen uh, there's robots being made, basically like a sex doll, but it's a robot. I've right. Seen, so, yeah. Right, and you're going to get all wired up so that you feel these sensations, and you can have whatever size sexual equipment you want to have, and the person will love whatever it is that you want to do, and da 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 da, and you know, it's already here, uh, and it will be more so in the future. I think so. To actually be somebody who wants to learn some intimacy skills. Uh, first of all, you might be really in demand because I think people, I I I, I think that's that's something that um, that people are losing uh, their ability to do. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know for our listeners, it's important that we talk about this and and realize that with the internet and and the movies and books that this is something that's happening but certainly it doesn't have to happen to them and to sort of stay take a step back unplug the phone unplug the computer don't read so many romance novels watch so many soap operas and try to reconnect with uh on a human being level yeah, I'm just saying that I think it's a challenge, but more power to you if you want to, if you're willing to, you know, hold on to those skills or learn those skills, you know, because I do think that our culture is moving towards that objectification and uh, everything is virtual. So um, I think you're going to have to deal with it one way or the other because all the temptations are there. Yeah, no, certainly. But, uh, you know, but important, you can deal with it, but to recognize that it's happening, I guess, um, is sort of the first step to to trying to not let it affect you as much. Do you do you work with any couples where one person is getting more into the the virtual sex and their other the other person is is not, and it causes struggles within the relationship? All the time, I would say pretty much everybody I see is in that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. in that situation. Uh, you know, more typically, it's the uh, more typically it's the guy who gets hung up on uh, internet porn, and then his spouse is going to, "What am I, chopped liver?" You know, right? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, or feels bad because they can't measure up to uh, over time to you know the perfection that can happen in terms of online images, or or just the fact of newness. You know, a lot of of internet sex is about the the desire for intensity over intimacy. Mm, and yeah. intensity is fueled by newness, new image, new image, and also more extreme behaviors. People start looking for more exotic and more extreme behaviors just to just to have some kind of intensity sensation. Something new. So, yeah, there's, uh, there's uh, men and women are wired differently, I think, for sex. Like men are wired for the visual, you mm-hmm. know, and women, I think, are more wired for the uh, hearing. You know, they want to hear words of love. They want to look in somebody's eyes. It's a relational thing, 
And with men, they're, you know, just more wired for the visual. So it's a matter of can we find some way to accept these differences? Can we find some way to have our relationships be more win-win? Mm-hmm. You know, but I think it starts with just understanding that fundamentally we do have some differences. And by the way, I think people have struggles with relationships also male-male, female-female, you know. Mm-hmm. Um There's just a lot of differences between human beings. What do you find is the most common reason that couples struggle in their relationship? Well, I think the biggest reason is, um, well, here's a way of looking at it. It's almost like, okay, I'm a movie director. Like if I can imagine those old movie director cameras that you held on your shoulder mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm hand, uh, I'm moving my hand like in a circle, like, mm-hmm. okay, so you guys are all in the movie of my life. And here's the deal. Some of you have forgotten your lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm trying to point this out to you. Yeah. And you have the nerve to think you're the movie director and I'm a character in your movie and perhaps I've forgotten my lines. Yeah. So, yeah, And then you look around and you start realizing uh, that all of us, we're all walking around with these kind of like movie cameras on our shoulders uh, thinking we're in charge of this movie and how everybody else ought to be acting, say. Yeah. And I think that's where the conflict is, is, uh, well, people thinking this is how uh, husbands are supposed to act. This is how girlfriends are supposed to look or act or whatever. So we have all these expectations, usually, again, uh, you know, it's in our conditioning. So, um, you know, in order to have a successful relationship, I think it's helpful to put those on the table, to take a look at that and see one of the good things about the modern day is that perhaps you can redesign your relationship, but you have to take into consideration your conditioning and what you might need to do to tweak that so as to make for more win-win scenarios. Mm. A lot of people approach relationships as one is one up and one is one down. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some people can live together a long time like that, but I personally think it works better if you have more win-win, more equality, more reciprocity, uh, those kinds of things. Mutual respect, essentially. Yeah. Absolutely. And it goes to a theme that we've talked about that can cause problems is always having to be right. And if you're always having yeah. to be right, then you cannot have a win-win situation. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. So acceptance, forgiveness are, are very powerful. And uh, what goes along with this, I think, is this idea of, um, I, in fact, it's only in recent years that this has really become clear to me. And that's the idea that the other person is allowed to like what they like. Hmm. Which sounds simple on the surface, yeah. but it means like for years it's like, oh, why does somebody want to watch football? You know, <sighs> or uh, some guy could say, I don't know why she wants to watch that stupid bachelor show. <laughs> <laughs> A yeah. guilty pleasure, I yeah. would say. <laughs> and uh, and, and it, sometimes we just find ourselves interested in something, even though we know maybe it's kind of stupid or pointless. But, you know, you're allowed to like what you like. And then how can I allow for that? It doesn't necessarily mean I have to sit there through it. I, that's why I honestly believe every house should have at least two televisions. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever, it, you know, 
uh, back in my day, I wanted two telephone lines, too, because I wanted to use a telephone when I wanted to use a telephone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, these are my rules for living. Two bathrooms is also a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's worth the extra overtime to pay for that. Uh, but see, it's that idea of can I allow the other person to like what they like? Now, sometimes if what they like is to have sex with somebody else, you know, and uh, that this may not work for me. Sometimes it does work for people, and they have polyamory or whatever. But, you know, I do think that when people make agreements, generally a relationship works best when people are able to keep their agreements, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, great information there. And now we are going into the his and her round where Sarah and I will each ask a question that's on our minds. Sarah's up first. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what would be the first step in addressing a sex addiction? Well, the first step in addressing, usually there's some kind of discovery that happens, you know, um, between two people. Typically, there's some kind of discovery like, oh, my God, I found this, you know, receipt in the pocket of some hotel I didn't know of, or, or I looked online and they sent an email to some prostitute or whatever the thing is, you know, or they, you, you have some evidence of other girlfriends or, or something like that, or boyfriends as far as that goes. So there's usually some kind of initial crisis because mm-hmm. something is discovered. Um, otherwise, you know, a, a sex addiction is all about having a secret life. You know, people say to me, how much sex do you have to have to have a sex addiction? You know, and it isn't dependent on how much sex. It's depending on how many secrets. Right. Really. Yeah. You know, because sex addiction is all about having a secret life, typically. Um, You know, I don't call it a sex addiction if people are interested in polyamory or openly they're swinging or whatever. I mean, I don't care what consenting people, consenting adults do. Um. So usually the secret comes to comes to light, and then it's sort of um, okay. Uh, the jig is up, and now um, uh, maybe treatment is possible. Do we just split over this, or is there a way to recover from this? And so at SRI, we uh, have a lot of people go through something called a two-week intensive, and that's outpatient. So people stay at a local sober living, and therefore people come in from all over the country, for example and do this two-week intensive, which isn't as expensive as sort of an inpatient 30-day rehab kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So uh, what we do with folks is, um, first of all, work to help bring them out of denial. Because like any other addiction, when you have sex addiction, you tend to minimize. You usually don't tell the whole truth right from the beginning. And so we uh, we try very hard to work with people around the idea of, Learn to tell your truth and tell it faster. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, a fundamental kind of recovery idea of telling the truth and telling it faster, and first finding a way to do that in therapy or within another within a, a small group of other recovering people. And you know, we even send people to twelve-step programs, like Sex Addicts Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. We also then bring in the partner where appropriate to do couple sessions so that we can have education and validate feelings. And, you know, partners often need a lot of trauma recovery because they've been traumatized. Mm -hmm. So there are a whole lot of different elements to this. In fact, many of the people who have sex addiction also came from, you know, families where there was alcohol and drug addiction or sex addiction or molest kind of experiences, things like that. So it's it's a complicated thing with many levels. 
Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And my question is with sex addiction only relatively recently being professionally diagnosed, I feel like from the stuff I've read and seen is that sometimes that can be used as, I guess, like an excuse for cheating. Well, I'm addicted to sex. How do you differentiate between a, an addiction or just a cheating spouse? Well, once I had, uh, I'm not sure if I can say this on your program, but I'll say it anyway. I had a, a a couple come to see me, and the wife was really mad at her husband. And she said, I know you treat sex addiction as a disease or a disorder, but I don't know if my husband is a sex addict or he's just an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I said, I you know, I paused, and then I looked at her, and I said, well, lucky for you, the treatment is exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Because uh, the truth is that um, recovery starts with admitting you have a problem, you know, and uh, what we try to do is to have people really take a look at themselves and they do inventories and they bond with other guys who have a similar problem and they start supporting one another and there's shame reduction and then there's, um, you know, how you intervene with your triggers and uh, a whole lot of things like that. So. You know, the addiction model, many people misunderstand whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, or food. It doesn't mean, oh, now you have an excuse. If you actually could come to the place where you own that you have an addiction and are willing to work a recovery program, that means by definition that you are signing up to take responsibility. Okay. Yeah. You know, every addiction recovery program is all about focusing not on what's wrong with your partner, but on I got to take that pointy finger around and point it at myself and say, okay, how did I set this up? What am I doing that keeps this going? What do I need to do to change? So there's a lot of responsibility taking in addiction recovery. Well, that's, that's great advice. Now it's time for our favorite part of the interview, the lasting love round. We'll ask you a series of questions and you'll respond with great information to help set the foundation for a lasting relationship. We love it. Our listeners love it. So, Sharon, are you ready to help us build lasting love? Sure. (laughs) Go for it. Great. What's one thing couples can do on a daily basis to help improve their relationship? Okay, well, the first thing that I, uh, I think would be a good idea for couples to do is start the day just looking your partner in the eye and, um, and saying three positive things to the other person. You know, just three compliments, three appreciations. They can be, I appreciate that you changed the roll of toilet paper without mm-hmm. me asking. You know, I mean, right. <laughs> they don't have to be big things. But to start the day with some kind of appreciation, because most of us, you know, we're looking around the world and it's like we only say something to the partner when something irritates us. So if you can start the day or at least somewhere during the day, maybe you have to jump out of bed or they're still sleeping or something, you know, try to get in your at minimum three appreciation slash compliments a day. It's nice if there could be some hug or physical affection in there as well. But the mo- most important thing is is saying something to the partner about appreciation. Nothing kind of sort of, you know, uh, builds a bridge quite like that. Is there a book or resource you can recommend for couples? 
Yeah, there's a couple of them that I really like. One that I've been uh, having a lot of my clients read, it's not even about sex addiction. It's called Wired for Love. It's Uh by Stan Tatkin, Mm -hmm. T-A-T-K-I-N. And it's a short book, and it's um, easy to read, very understandable. And um, it basically, it's, it's, the subtitle is something about understanding your partner's neurobiology so that you can actually communicate a lot more effectively. And uh, so he talks to the audience, to you, to the reader, about um, coming to understand whether you are, for example, naturally, uh, he calls it a wave, an island, or an anchor. <laughs> and, he, and so he uses a lot of these kinds of descriptions, meaning, an, uh, you know, uh, an island would be somebody, you know, kind of leave me alone, and then when I want to be with you, I'll be with you, but yeah. otherwise I really feel best when you leave me alone. An anchor would be more like I want to stay connected to you by the hip 24-7, mm-hmm. you know, and then a wave might be, you know, my emotions come up and then they recede. And so it's how to get along with people who are predominantly one or another of those types of uh, personalities. So it's it's really interesting about um, how to be uh, more effective in your communication. Another book I like is Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks. He sold already um, thousands of copies of that. That book's been around for a while. And that's about putting your relationship first, and then you'll get more of your personal needs met if you put your relationship first. Stan Patkin uh, talks about many of the same issues. Great. Well, those two books will be on your show notes page on our website at idopodcast.com. And our listeners know to go there to check out those great recommendations. Okay. And we're getting married this year. Is there any advice you would give engaged couples or newlyweds? Well, I think the whole thing is is to remember to treat your uh, your partner with at least as much courtesy as you would treat a stranger you invite into your house. Yeah, I love it. I mean, yeah, it's really <laughs> it's you simple, know just a but... simple thing like this. It's really amazing how much we'll put one another down, or you know, some teasing one another can be sort of fun and flirty, but it also can be really mean. And um, sometimes we treat our intimate partners with a lot less respect or courtesy, uh, just basic politeness, you know, um, than somebody who's maybe a stranger uh, or who just, you know, showed up at our houses at a party or something like this that we would look out for them or bring them something to, you know, drink or take their coat or any other kind of thing. So I would say that's the number one thing, along with um, to remember that it really is okay for the other person that they're allowed to like what it is that they like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and how might we manage this so that both people uh, can get their needs met or do trade-offs if you both want something that happens at the same time on the same day, you know? Uh, So uh, keeping the idea, how could having a discussion, how could we make this win-win, that's a good sentence. I think that's such a a great little tip to take away from this is that it's okay that you and your partner don't like the same exact things, that you can be different and it's okay. Yeah, I also think it's important to have some friends outside of your relationship so that you can have, you know, whatever activity that maybe is your passion that you do with your girlfriends or you do with your guy friends, understanding that, that whatever it is that you do, 
that primarily you are putting your relationship first as a separate entity. You know, is whatever I'm going to do going to help serve this relationship or is it going to really detract from the relationship? That's a good question to ask yourself before you decide you're going to go with your guy friends to the strip club. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've talked a lot of great little pieces of information, but if you could just give one single piece of advice for a successful relationship, what would it be? It would be um, never forget acceptance and forgiveness. Acceptance and forgiveness, I think, are the key elements as... um, you know, opening your heart to what can I learn from this, that this person is in your life for you to learn more about yourself through your interactions with that person. Acceptance and forgiveness, two easy words to remember, a little bit harder sometimes to uh, to, do. to do, but definitely want to make that always part of an effort in your relationship. Yeah, I, I just want to add uh, as a part of a further explanation of, of that, it's if you can look at the person who's come into your life as you chose them for subconscious reasons, likely, and so you will learn so much about yourself in your efforts to interact with them in a successful way. So, you know, we all go about healing whatever wounds in childhood, and we all had them, you know, through our our current relationships. That's why they're there. And once you realize that that's what you're about, Uh, I think you might be a lot more gentle and kind with yourself and with the other person. Well, that's just great information, Sharon. And we've really enjoyed hearing all the advice you've given us and our listeners today. So let's finish by having you tell our listeners where they can find you, and then we'll say goodbye. Okay. Yes, any of the listeners can call me at 310-326-5534, or they can email me at Sharon O'Hara MFT, that's a long one, <laughs> at gmail.com, S-H-A-R-O-N-O-H-A-R-A-M-F-T for Marriage Family Therapist, at gmail.com. Thanks. Well, our listeners can find all the information and links of today's episode on idopodcast.com. Go to the podcast tab and you'll be in the archives. And thank you so much for all the generous knowledge and for taking the time to come on our show today. You're welcome. Thank you. Do you have a topic that you'd like to hear more about or a relationship question you'd like answered? Email us at info at idopodcast.com and we'll be sure to add it to one of our upcoming episodes.